the chapters that are remaining in Exodus and recognizing that some of this material is so highly specific, so highly specific to a certain moment in time, a certain set of circumstances that we struggle uh, to be interested in it, maybe, and to find what is here for us from the Lord. And I want to remind you of a little uh, analogy that I heard from a colleague of mine that I've always found helpful. When we think about the scriptures, and particularly these Old Testament books, think about sending somebody an email. And there is the two-line, that is the original recipient of this revelation. And yet when God gave it to them, it's like he wrote our names in the CC line. He carbon copied that for us because, in fact, that truth wasn't just for them. There are things here for us as well. There is a message. There are truths to be discerned and to be applied to our lives. And I trust that we'll get a sense of that even from a chapter like Exodus 29. And I'd like to begin this way by talking about uh, ordinations of gospel ministers that we are familiar with in our day and age. I was, uh, as I was sitting there this morning, opened up the front of my Bible. Uh, the Bible that I'm usually preaching from was one that was given to me at my ordination. And I noticed the date was March 9th, 2008, so we're coming up on the 16th anniversary of that event. And it is a blessing to think back on the whole process involved in that and even on a service where somebody is set aside for the gospel ministry. And I'd like to read uh, about that a little bit from a classic devotional work uh, that the Church of Jesus Christ has long loved. And this is the diary of Pastor Andrew Bonar, a 19th century Presbyterian minister. And he is talking in this entry about his own upcoming ordination. He says, I have been a good deal exercised in seeking and wishing to possess, but tremble lest I have not faith to expect that my ordination will be so blessed that there will be a change in me as in the disciples after Pentecost and in Moses after the call was really received. And I appreciate that sentiment when you are formally set aside for a gospel ministry really hoping that that one service would just like turn you into the next Moses or something right he was longing for God to do at least something in his life and he goes on at some length and then he shares a little bit from a letter from his brother John ordination is not a sacrament but the fact of being set apart contains a pledge of grace on the part of God, just as a sacrament does. In other words, it's not a sacrament in the sense that it's going to just revolutionize you on the spot and turn you into something you weren't before. But nevertheless, if God has set you apart to carry out a task, and he has led this church to lay their hands on you to formally set you aside, there is with that in Scripture a promise as well that God is going to enable you to be faithful and to carry out whatever it is he is setting you apart to do. And he goes on to recount about even the ordination sermon that was preached. And these are wonderful memories that, that God's 
ministers have as they look back on sort of their formal launch into ministry. And there is a natural kind of solemnity about that sort of event. And I bring that up because that is also the atmosphere of our passage. In fact, if you have the same general Bible that I have, the heading for chapter 29 here is the consecration, which you could also say the ordination of the priests that were to carry out the work of the tabernacle. This isn't actually the event of their ordination. That's actually going to happen in chapter 40. What you have here is a pretty long description of what God is telling Moses should be done on that occasion. And it runs all the way from chapter 29, verse 1 to verse 37, these detailed instructions for what ought to happen in that particular ordination service. And the leading word for it, even though ordination in English is going to come up later on, but the leading word is the word consecration, which you see right there in verse 1. Now this is what you shall do to them to consecrate them, that they may serve me as priests. And that word consecration is from the same word family that the Old Testament words for holiness come from. It has to do with being set apart from sort of normal life and set apart unto some special purpose that God has for these individuals, some special task. And that's going to be our consideration this morning. We're going to think like we're in that CC line in this message and ask, well, what is there in all of this for me? We'll get to that eventually. The title of the message is Consecration to Priestly Service. Consecration to Priestly Service. And what I like to do, we, we do this from time to time where instead of just giving you uh, the points of the message or the applications along the way. We're going to just read through this little by little, section by section, inductively. Notice how it breaks down. Get a sense of what's happening here. And then toward the end, draw out some parallels that help us understand the application to our lives. So we're going to pick it up in the middle of verse 1 where I stopped reading a moment ago. And what you have starting at this point is that the Lord is going to lay out certain materials that are going to need to be involved in this process. Just like in ordination, you might have an ordination Bible or an ordination certificate. This is a lot more complicated in what materials are involved. The Lord says, take one bull of the herd and two rams without blemish and unleavened bread, unleavened cakes mixed with oil, unleavened wafers smeared with oil. You shall make them a fine wheat flour. You shall put them in one basket and bring them in the basket and bring the bull and the two rams. That does sound a lot more complicated than any ordination service I've ever been a part of. There are going to be in this service three different animals that are going to be sacrificed on the altar. And there are also going to be various unleavened bread products and each of those animals would have its own role and its own message in the process of ordination. And then the passage goes on, having listed out those materials to talk about the garments that they're going to have put on them, as well as the 
starting point of the ordination and in some ways the focal point, and that is the anointing, uh, particularly of the high priest. So look with me at verse 4. This will sound familiar because last time in chapter 28 we were looking at all these garments. It says, You shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and wash them with water. Then you shall take the garments and put on Aaron the coat and the robe of the ephod and the ephod and the breastpiece and gird him with the skillfully woven band of the ephod. And you shall set the turban on his head and put the holy crown on the turban. You shall take the anointing oil and pour it on his head and anoint him. Then you shall bring his sons and put coats on them. And you shall gird Aaron and his sons with sashes and bind caps on them. And the priesthood shall be theirs by a statute forever. Thus you shall ordain Aaron and his sons. Here are all of those ornate garments that we looked at last week. There was a super special edition that was for the high priest, but all of the assistant priests got their own special clothing as well. And the centerpiece is the moment in time when Moses pours oil on the head of Aaron to serve as the high priest. And we're familiar, perhaps, with that ritual from Old Testament times. The pouring of oil on the head signified a number of things. It signified, first of all, that God had chosen specifically this individual for that role, that God was setting him aside from customary human activity in order for him to carry it out, and as well that God was now going to empower him to carry out that task faithfully. We're not going to take the time to demonstrate all that, but all of those, those points I just listed out, there are Old Testament references that connect the anointing with God choosing, God setting the person aside, and God empowering him to be effective in his work. And in verse 9, we find the first reference to this language of ordination. It sounds like our English concept, but literally, it's pretty different. Actually, this reads... The word ordain translates this kind of language. Thus, you shall fill the hand of Aaron and his sons. Ordaining at that point isn't talking about the anointing. It's actually picturing these men as putting their hands out empty as if to say, Lord, if I'm going to do this, I need some equipping here. I need some provision. Fill my hand with all of the equipping and resources and power that I need in order to do what you've called me to do. That is the concept of ordination. So they are not only being set aside in practical ways through what's going to be described here, they are also being prepared and equipped. And if you ask exactly what is involved in the process, well, that's what the rest of the passage is going to flesh out. And so we move on to the third section, verses 10 to 14. And you find here that the Lord tells them what to do with the first animal of those three, and it was a bull. Look with me at verse 10. Then you shall bring the bull before the tent of meeting. Aaron and his son shall lay their hands on the head of the bull. Then you shall kill the bull before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. 
and shall take part of the blood of the bull and put it on the horns of the altar with your finger, and the rest of the blood you shall pour out at the base of the altar. And you shall take all the fat that covers the entrails and the long lobe of the liver and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them and burn them on the altar. But the flesh of the bull and its skin and its dung you shall burn with fire outside the camp. It is a sin offering. Now let me mention a few comments about that part. First of all, at the beginning, it talks about these individuals laying a hand on the head of the animal. And that kind of thing is going to show up actually with the other two sacrifices as well. What's happening there is that that's a way of formally associating the person offering the animal with the animal and them visually designating that animal as their representative or their substitute. In other words, there's a symbolism here that what is what the animal is going to go through is teaching something visually about what the person himself actually deserves, and he is connecting himself with that thing as it goes through the sacrifice. This animal, this bull, is specifically called, in verse 14, a sin offering. And we're going to see various terms for different kinds of sacrifices that are mentioned in this passage. The sin offering, you could actually better understand it in terms of a de-sinning offering, or we might say a decontamination sort of offering, which is why a lot of translations or scholars prefer to call this a purification offering. In other words, again, this is all symbolic. Everything about the world in which we live, and even these pieces of furniture and these garments and, and, and the altar and everything else. It's like it's dirty, symbolically speaking. It's connected with the sinful world and the, the rebellion of humanity. And the Lord says that to get across his teaching here that he is a holy God and, and this kind of uncleanness needs to be removed. We're going to go through some rituals here to get across that idea where visually it's like the offering of this animal results in the cleansing of these things so they can actually function according to God's plan. And you see that here especially with what is done with the blood of this bull. Did you notice that some of the blood they're actually going to put on the horns of the altar and the rest of the blood is poured at the base of the altar the altar itself, before it is formally set aside to, to offer sacrifices on, it itself has to be cleansed and consecrated. God is really going to put an emphasis here on how sin separates uh, human beings from humanity and even the material things that they're going to use to seek the Lord and worship him have to be cleansed, ceremonially speaking symbolically purified from its association with human sin and being set apart to be a place of sacrifice and of worship. That is the purpose of the first animal in this sequence. Then we come to the second animal, which is in verse 15 to 18. And at this point, we're reading about not a bull, but a ram. Verse 15. Then you shall take one of the rams, and Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on the head of the ram. And you shall kill the ram, 
and shall take its blood and throw it against the sides of the altar. Then you shall cut the ram into pieces and watch its entrails and its legs, put them with its pieces in its head and burn the whole ram on the altar. It is a burnt offering to the Lord, to Yahweh. It is a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. Now there is still in this uh, partially an element of the consecration of the altar because some of the that the blood of the ram, it is splashed onto the sides of the altar. But what makes this one stand apart is that it's not called a sin offering to decontaminate. That's not its main purpose. It's called a burnt offering. And I've talked about this recently. What sets this apart is that the entire animal is burned up on the altar in the act of worship to the Lord, as if to say nothing is going to be held back here. Nobody gets any of this. All of it entirely is consumed. And it was a way by which the, the priest, the sacrificial system, the altar, having been cleansed, is now going to be completely devoted to the Lord. Right? That's the symbolism. This is going forward, not just any altar. Right? You can't just show up there and uh, have a barbecue and grill some steak on it. This has been 100% devoted to the purposes of sacrifice to the Lord, and by this animal being completely burnt up in this occasion, this whole system is formally devoted to the Lord. And the result would be that God was pleased, right? That's how it ends. A pleasing aroma of food offering to the Lord he is accepting of this. And there's the assurance that now that he has launched this whole thing and set it apart to himself, it's going to continue to be the way by which you offer pleasing worship to God. If that is so, why would a third sacrifice be required? And that's a good question. And so it's appropriate that the third sacrifice takes up the longest amount of space in this passage, and that's going to be the 10 verses, 19 through 28. Let's read, starting in verse 19. You shall take the other ram, and Aaron and his son shall lay their hands on the head of the ram. You shall kill the ram, take part of its blood, and put it on the, listen to this, the tip of the right ear of Aaron, and on the tips of the right ears of his sons, and on the thumbs of their right hands, and on the great toes of their right feet, and throw the rest of the blood against the sides of the altar. Then you shall take part of the blood that is on the altar and of the anointing oil, sprinkle it on Aaron and his garments and on his sons and his sons' garments with him. He and his garments shall be holy and his sons and his sons' garments with him. Here again, there's more splashing of blood of that animal on the altar. But again, we're asking what is new and different from the other sacrifices. And what is new here is that the blood is now not applied only to the altar. It is applied to the priests, like physically to their bodies and also sprinkled on their garments as it is apparently mixed with anointing oil. Blood is put on the right ear, on the right thumb and on the right big toe talk about the lord 
being very precise in what he desires them to do with all of this symbolism. Those body parts are what we would call some of the extremities or the end points of the body. And God chooses them, I believe, to suggest that everything in between those extremities, the entire body of these individuals, is being set aside for divine service. Or, as one man put it, this meant that they belong to God from head to toe. Right? Just like the entire sacrifice was burnt up to consecrate the sacrificial system, now it's more particular to the individual priests who are involved in leading the worship and carrying out the sacrifices. They are 100% now being devoted to the Lord from head to toe. In fact, some authors go further than that. And I think there's something here to think about. Symbolically, quote, symbolically, the blood put on the right ear sanctified that organ to hear the word of God. That which was put on the right hand set the hands apart in their performance of mediatorial work. The right foot spoke of the sanctified walk of the life of the priest as an example to others. I believe that there is a validity to making those connections in terms of the specific things that these men would do with those parts of their body as a part of their ministry. And get this as well, verse 21, the blood is also splashed on their clothes. Remember those ornate and beautiful garments that we talked about last time. The fancy threads and materials for the robe, the ephod, the precious metals that studded this breastpiece and the others that were on the shoulders. You might think this is so valuable and this is so attractive. God would want to maintain it in a pristine condition. But actually, those beautiful garments that symbolize so much about the priest's successful mediation, they are going to be stained by blood. Pretty striking image there. In other words, they're not going to be able to carry out their ministry without blood being shed. Blood shedding is at the core of it, and in fact, they themselves were also sinners, and they needed their own sin dealt with before they could help other people deal with their sin. Blood is just all over the place here. It's a pretty gruesome image, actually. Now let's go on to verse 22. You shall also take the fat from the ram and the fat tail and the fat that covers the entrails, the long lobe of the liver, the two kidneys with the fat on them, and the right thigh, for it is a ram of ordination, and one loaf of bread and one cake of bread made with oil and one wafer out of the basket of unleavened bread that is set before the Lord. You shall put all these on the palms of Aaron. Remember I talked about filling their hands. And on the palms of his sons, and wave them for a wave offering before the Lord. Then you shall take them from their hands and burn them on the altar on top of the burnt offering as a pleasing aroma before the Lord, as a food offering to the Lord. Now what is going on here? This is another new element. And it doesn't talk about this being a burnt offering 
or a sin offering. It talks about being a wave offering. These priests would pick up pieces of the animal and some of the bread that went along with the sacrifice and somehow wave it before the Lord and then ultimately it would be burned but there is this very personal aspect that they are engaging in physically lifting this up before the Lord and putting it on display before him as an act of worship. So it's a wave offering. It's a way by which they are responding in recognition of the God that they're serving him in adoration and kind of formally presenting it personally to him in that way. And yet even that's not the end of it because that was only part of the animal in this case that was being burned. What happens with the rest of the stuff? And that's what the next few verses are about, starting at verse 26. You shall take the breast of the ram of Aaron's ordination, the rest of it, wave it before uh, as a wave offering before the Lord, and it shall be, listen to this, your portion. And you shall consecrate the breast of the wave offering that is waved and the thigh of the priest's portion that is contributed from the ram of ordination from what was Aaron's and his sons. It shall be for Aaron and his sons as a perpetual due from the people of Israel, for it is a contribution. It shall be a contribution from the people of Israel, from their peace offerings, their contribution to the Lord. And the rest of it just kind of expands on that. In fact, there's a little bit more about their garments in verses 29 and 30. And then verse 31 goes on to talk about how they actually are preparing this meat to eat, boiling its flesh in the holy place. And it is for Aaron and his sons to eat in the entrance of the tent of meeting. They shall eat those things with which atonement was made at their ordination and consecration, but an outsider shall not eat of them because they're holy. And if any of the flesh before the ordination or the bread remains until the morning, then you shall burn the remainder with fire. It shall not be eaten because it is holy. Now, what's happening here? Often, when there's an ordination, the family and maybe the pastors of the church will get together for a reception or even a meal afterward. Okay? You can think of it that way. They go through all of this ritual and all of these sacrifices, but there is a segment that is set apart, and now they get to eat as their portion of the sacrifice some of that animal and some of the bread stuff that went along with it. In fact, the wording, you may have picked up on this, is that, that that practice is not limited to the ordination. This was to be the way it normally was with this class of offering. And basically, we would say that is like their compensation or their paycheck for having been involved, given their lives over to this ministry. They actually eat from the sacrifices themselves. And verse 28 describes their portion as a peace offering. Now we're into yet another category of sacrifice. And that was the kind where a part was held back, and there is this enjoyment of some of it in a, in a kind of fellowship meal. 
that is giving the idea that these men are now enjoying a meal with God. It's like symbolically he got part of the ram and now literally they get the other part. They're enjoying fellowship as the result of all these other sacrifices. Peace has been established to such degree that they can actually enjoy a meal together with God right in the precincts of the tabernacle, in the direct presence of the Lord. And so you look at all these sacrifices, you see the sequence here. This sequence becomes significant for other parts of the Old Testament and it's really the image of the whole process almost that you move from purification where sin is dealt with in the sin offering. Then you have consecration in the burnt offering as the individual is responding back to the Lord's grace and worshiping him. And then coming out of that, there is the peace offering or the fellowship with the Lord that is enjoyed. Purification responding to that in consecration, and then you are blessed with the privilege of fellowship with God. That is the image here. And what we find in the last just few verses is that this was not a one-day event, but actually this stretched out for a whole week. And again, a big difference with our ordination processes. Here is a is a ritual, a whole set of them that stretches out for seven days. Look at verse 35. Thus you shall do to Aaron and his sons according to all that I have commanded you. Through seven days you shall ordain them, and every day you shall offer a bull as a sin offering for atonement. Also you shall purify the altar when you make atonement for it, and shall anoint it to consecrate it. Seven days you shall make atonement for the altar and consecrate it, and the result of that is the, the altar shall be most holy, and even to the point that whatever touches the altar symbolically shall become holy. So, as a result of all this, the seven-day ritual, everything is now fully in place for the altar to successfully carry out its purposes, for the priests to successfully carry out their ministry. And again, this is just laying out what they were to do. We're going to eventually come to chapter 40. And you know what the Lord's response is when they go through all this like they were told? There is this massive theophany or this manifestation of the visible presence of God that just swoops down on the tabernacle and launches the ministry that would go on in that building. God was pleased when they did this, and this actually in his plan at this time, worked to accomplish everything he desired for that structure. Now, hopefully that captures accurately what this was going to look like in the original setting. Now we come to the question of application. What in the world does all of that have to do with my life? And as I thought about that, it would be tempting to focus a lot on the ordination concept when it comes to people that are being set aside for formal or vocational gospel ministry. The New Testament does not give us a great deal of information about ordinations and what all went on and what they looked like in the first century. But we do have passages like this in 1 Timothy 4.14. Paul says to, to Timothy, do not neglect the gift you have 
which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Again, we don't know exactly how this worked, but he connects his spiritual giftedness with the laying on of hands. It seems to be a part of the miraculous kinds of things that were going on in the first century that actually there were times when in an ordination service, particularly if you had an apostle, that individual received some kind of unusual giftedness and equipping for his ministry. And even though that doesn't happen today, ordination is still a very special event among the people of God. It encourages a congregation with the reality that God has graciously provided pastoral leadership for them. And it especially encourages the man being ordained that God has called and equipped him and God will be with him and strengthen him and use him as he ministers from day to day and week to week. And I think that certain aspects of this passage we've looked at can reasonably be applied to New Testament ordination. It really has a way of highlighting the importance of what is happening when a congregation sets aside a man for the ministry of the word. I think there's something to that, but actually that's not what I want to concentrate on today. In the sweep of redemptive history, I do not believe that pastoral ordinations would be the main issue that we ought to be thinking of with this passage. There are two other more foundational parallels to what we're seeing here. And the first of them is going to require that we just remember what we were talking about last week and how those truths that, that were taught by the garments had so much to do with the work of Jesus Christ, our high priest. Right? Christ is the first one that we ought to be thinking about in a passage like this. He is the main one that we ought to be thinking about when it comes even to the ordination of these priests. The garments pointed forward to truths about his high priestly ministry, and we should also connect the ordination, particularly of the high priest of Israel, to the ministry of, of Christ. Now, you start going down that line and you search the New Testament. You ask yourself, is there anything in the New Testament that would speak of a kind of ordination of Jesus Christ for his redemptive work? that would be a parallel to what we are looking at in Exodus 29. Well, the word is not used, but I want to give you, again, the concept or the theology that's communicated by all this regarding anointing and consecration. What's happening in this ordination? God is formally setting aside and commissioning the high priest for his ministry, and God is equipping that man to carry out his work successfully. And at the same time, can you imagine being on the receiving end of all of this blood and all of these rituals that are about your own ministry and you're willing to go through with it, even to the point of having all this blood put on you personally and given this big long list of, you know, it's like a job description in some passages of the law. This is what you are being commissioned to do. The willingness of that individual to subject himself to that ritual 
is showing that he himself is yielding himself to that task. He is willing to follow the Lord and carry out this job, right? So what's happening in the ordination? Visually, it's being communicated. This is my man. I'm setting him aside. I'm giving him everything he needs to accomplish it. And he in his heart, by going through these actions, is saying, I'm willing to do this, Lord. My life belongs to you for the purpose that you have given me to do. Did that sort of interaction of commissioning and then surrendering to the commission, do you suppose that that happened among the members of the Trinity when it comes to the work of redemption and the high priestly ministry of Jesus? Actually, theologians talk about the covenant of redemption which is not a covenant made in time, but it's a covenant made in eternity among the members of the Godhead, whereby they agreed that they would do this thing called our salvation, right? And you find little hints of this along the way in the New Testament. The passage that to me stood out the most as I considered this was John 10, 36, when the Lord is defending his own deity and almost in passing, he describes himself this way in John 10, 36. Him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world. The word consecrated there is from the Greek terminology for holiness, setting aside unto the Lord. And it's the same kind of terminology that's used for the consecration of the priest over here in Exodus. God the Father set aside and devoted to redemptive service the second member of the Godhead, and he sent him out into the world to accomplish that work. There was a kind of in, inner Trinitarian ordination or consecration to the carrying out of our salvation through Jesus Christ. And you get another sense of it. In, in time now, in the ministry of Jesus on earth, in kind of the formal launching of his work at his baptism. What is it that we read about in Matthew chapter 3? Why did he undergo that? Here is how it is recounted. He comes out of the water, and behold, Matthew 3.16, the heavens were opened to him. He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, and coming to rest on him, and behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Right? In that moment of time, you have the formal launch of the ministry of the Messiah. The Father is pleased with him. Just as he was pleased with the sacrifices that consecrated the priest. And in fact, the Lord also sends the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove for what purpose? To empower him. And there are cases when even the anointing oil used for ordination of people in the Old Testament is connected with the empowering of the Spirit. Here it comes out in the image of the dove, but it's the same idea. God is fully equipping Jesus Christ to carry out his redemptive work. Those aspects of the ordination of priests also find their expression in the ministry of Christ. Well, if the Lord, the Father, 
is setting him aside, is commissioning him, is empowering him by the Spirit, what is the response of Jesus to that task? Is he kicking and screaming? Is he saying in all eternity, man, you're really going to have to twist my arm to do this? I don't care about these people. I have no desire to die for them. What is his attitude? In the book of Hebrews, which has so much to say about Christ's high priestly ministry, chapter 10 is going to adapt language from Psalm 40 along these lines. When Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure, like ultimately for actually saving people, actually removing their sins and restoring them to God. You've taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. What a beautiful way to describe the Son's willingness to carry out our redemption. He says, God, you have ordained this. You have prepared a body for me. You have, you know, you're going to unite me with humanity to carry this out. And I'm not going into this kicking and screaming. I have come to do your will. So that the spirit of the priest who are undergoing this procedure of ordination, being willing to follow through with their role, we see the heart of Christ having that same willingness and disposition. In fact, he said in another place, I delight to do your will. My life is wholly surrendered to you for this task. Difficult as it may be and painful as I know it will be, I have come to do your will. I am going to accomplish my high priestly work. Nothing is going to stand in the way. I am here to serve you, God, the Father, by carrying out this mission. And so all the elements of the ordination of those original priests we see here as well. The Father sets Christ aside for his redemptive work. The Father also empowers Christ through the Spirit and Christ willingly takes up his role as mediator. As a result, you and I do not need to doubt that this plan of redemption is going to work successfully. I mean, if the Father plans it, and the Spirit empowers it, and the Son surrenders to it, what chance is there that it's going to fall apart in the end? It will succeed. And so, when we think about these men in Exodus 29, let us think first and primarily about the consecration of our high priest, Jesus Christ. But you want to remember that in that chapter, there were other priests involved as well. They were secondary priests that were assisting the high priest in his work. And their role and their ordination has a parallel in our lives as well. And so I'd like to speak briefly about the consecration of all believers as priests. Last time I was talking about the priest and I made a point about our Protestant conviction based on the Bible that we do not need a human high priest to mediate for us, to represent us before God, to work out our salvation. Jesus is the only high priest, right? But remember another key teaching of the Protestant Reformation. 
the teaching also recovered by Martin Luther about the priesthood of every believer. That was also one of the great insights of the Reformation. And they didn't just come up with it. This is right from Scripture. I read for you from 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be what? A holy priesthood. To offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And he goes on to say, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Our special status and role in the plan of God in the world is actually connected with us being priests. God actually gave us a kind of a priestly function. Not that we're atoning for anybody's sins, but we are, in a sense, offering sacrifices that the New Testament describes in terms of our praise, in terms of our uh, acts of love, in terms of our good works. These are, these are kind of like sacrifices because sometimes we have to give stuff up to do them and we're doing it out of worship like an Old Testament sacrifice would be. And we have a priestly function in that sense and also part of the priest's role was to teach the word of God. And here it says, as priests, part of our job is to proclaim the excellencies of the God who saved us. And so there is a priesthood that we engage in and really from the moment of conversion, that is when that begins in principle, our being brought to Christ, to faith in Christ, being redeemed, at the same time is consecrating us to that role to serve the Lord as priests in the world. The question is, what about our attitude toward that role? And particularly when it gets hard to carry out that role. The willingness, as the priest in the Old Testament and Christ also displayed, to say, Lord, you're setting me aside for this, you're equipping me for this, I'm going to do it, right? There's a lesson to be taken away there as well. This is actually what Paul has in mind in that famous verse, Romans 12:1, when he says, I appeal to you by the mercies of God to present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. There is a connection between that verse and Exodus 29. The word sacrifice there is from the same root of the Greek word the Septuagint uses to translate Exodus 29:18 when it's talking about the food offering or the offering by fire that is given to the Lord. There's actually a link between this Exodus 29 passage and that appeal that we would be involved really as priests, in acts of worship, presenting not money to the poor in this case, presenting all of ourselves, our whole bodies, because our bodies are the only thing we have to get anything done for the Lord in this world. Presenting ourselves, even our physical bodies, for divine service. We are willingly offering ourselves to him for that. That is the spirit of consecration. It is the attitude of surrender that was required of the Old Testament priests is also then brought over into the New Testament. 
And I don't want to spiritualize Exodus 29, but perhaps there's something to be applied even when it comes to the blood on the big toe of the priest and the other extremities, meaning every single part of my body surrendered to the purposes of God. I don't know, maybe that's what Frances Ridley Havergal had in mind when she wrote, take my hands and let them move at the impulse of thy love. Take my feet and let them be swift and beautiful for thee. Take my voice and let me sing always only for my king. Take my lips and let them fill, be filled with messages from thee until we actually apply this to the particulars of our bodies and what those body parts do then what even does consecration mean or look like right we have to we have to flesh it out to the the functions of our bodies and how they are to be used in service to the lord now a lot of us rightly reject the revivalistic approach to the idea of consecration or surrender the New Testament does not call us to some kind of one-time dramatic experience of consecration that somehow launches you into a sort of a deeper life where you don't struggle anymore. And yet, there is still, for all of our rejecting of that overemphasis and even manipulation that some of us remember from having grown up in a context like that, there is still a vital teaching New Testament teaching about the surrender of the will of the believer to Jesus Christ. It's really the spirit of the entire Christian life. And because our flesh doesn't go away, it isn't a one-time deal. It is something that has to be renewed day after day and sometimes multiple times in the day of just consciously saying, Lord, I'm just going to yield to you on this. I may not feel like it, my flesh may resist it, but I am consciously making the choice to surrender myself to your service because of the special role that you have given me in this world. When you get up tomorrow morning, maybe this would be a good way to think of it and to express your desires to the Lord. Just kind of picture yourself with blood on your ears. I know it's kind of gross, but... Maybe it'll help you remember, right? Blood on your ears, blood on your feet, blood on your hands. Blood that has cleansed you. Blood that has purchased you. Blood that has set you apart for service. And you are looking at that and you're responding and saying, Lord, how can I do anything else but to willingly surrender myself to you to accomplish your purposes for my life? And I would like us to end this service by expressing that attitude to the Lord. I hope we can do it from our hearts. This is not just a routine or something sentimental. But to express the Lord, that spirit, in number 552 in our hymnals, which is the song, I Surrender All. Shall we stand together and sing?